Take your copy of the Word of God and go to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. There in the New Testament, towards, kind of towards the end there. Uh, it's page 1451 in my Bible, but I don't think that helps any. Uh, but uh, we have a, a message here tonight. Uh, or this morning, rather, uh, and I'm entitled A Recipe for Righteousness. And I'm going to give you four points and then end with a fifth point uh, for the benefits of righteousness. But I want us to look right here. Uh, first of all, I want to read the whole chapter here. 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses uh, 1 through 14. Verse number 1 begins with, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you, be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, brother unto you, I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you, all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, Lord, so much for you. And we thank you that uh, our salvation is certainly in Christ alone, Lord. And, and, and we love you, Lord. And, and we know that we can only love you because you first loved us. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you meet with us today, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I know you've never left us, Lord. But show up today like you've never shown before. Meet with us as we worship you, as we study your word, as we hear your word preached, Lord. Lord, we've, we've praised your name. We've praised your name today, Lord. Uh, Lord, we want you to be our vision as a people, as your people. And Lord, and I pray, Lord, that uh, the things that we take away from your text this morning, your holy and sacred text, Lord, we can apply them to our hearts and to our lives in a way that always brings you glory. Lord, we want to put a smile on your face this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you for Calvary. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for never leaving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, I've, I've entitled this A Recipe for Righteousness. And as you know, we've been kind of going through the, uh, this letter to uh, to the, to the believers there from Peter. Uh, we've been studying through this, and this will actually be our last sermon in 1 Peter this month, unless, unless the Lord calls us back on a Tuesday or something like that, and we get to come together. Uh, but next month we'll be in 1 Thessalonians, uh, Lord willing. And chapter 5, of course, uh, is obviously the last chapter of 1 Peter, and it's believed to have been written about 18 months before the beginning of 
the second epistle from Peter. Second Peter, and we almost went there, and I'm not saying we won't go there, but we're planning on First Thessalonians. Uh, but Second Peter is definitely more forward-looking. It, it, it picks up where First Peter takes or leaves off and goes a little bit more into the perseverance of the saints looking ahead to the return of Christ. Uh, and because of Peter's use of the word here in our text here, getting back to First uh, Peter chapter 5, he uses the word elders. And because he uses this word elders, it is believed that verses 1 through 4 are, are addressed to pastors. This is not just a Baptist conclusion, but, a, uh, but many, many conclude that to be the case there. And if you remember from our text, we've, we've looked at you know, Christians, we've looked at servants, we've looked at mothers and husbands. And that makes no surprise that Peter would go right along and, uh, and mention pastors. Uh, Strong's Concordance states that the New Testament use of the word bishop, the term bishop, uh, bishop, elders, presbyters, they're all used interchangeably, referring to overseers or pastors of a church. So I'm going to pick on me for a little bit, but in a way that we get to pick on each other together, so to speak. So in verse 2, we see that Peter states that one of the responsibilities of an elder or a pastor is, the taking, is taking the oversight thereof. He continues in verse 5 with the younger submitting to the elder like sheep to a shepherd. But it's not so much as, as subordinates, though, uh, but as fellow believers. The pastor is to be Christ-like, a Christ-like example to the flock, and lead as the under-shepherd of the Lord's flock. That is, that is the duty of a pastor. The words Lord over, uh, you see that right there in... Verse 3, neither as being lords over. That's one word in the Greek, and it means to exercise dominion. But you notice that, that Peter's writing the pastors not to exercise uh, dominion. That's God's not, that's not his plan. And we know from Matthew 20, you remember the dialogue there? Remember when the two, uh, two apostles are, are, who's the greatest in heaven? And, and Jesus says, well, the secular authorities have dominion. We don't operate that way. Let he who serves be the, the greatest among you. So we know that that's not God's idea of church. The pastor, the elder, the presbyter is to be an example and an overseer. So the pastor, again, is to oversee the flock, not overlord the flock. Uh, there's a difference there. He is to feed, protect, guide, pray for. But again, he does not have any secular authority. His authority is rest within the church. If you think about it, the church of which he is a part of is the bride of Christ. So we are the bride of Christ. Who do we answer to? The groom. We answer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I believe the Bible teaches in the authority of the local church, but it doesn't rest in the pulpit. It rests in the book and it rests here among all of us. I've had conversations a couple times before about who has the authority to baptize. The church has the authority to baptize. Uh, any member of that church can baptize him if he's, there's not even a qualification uh, only to believe, only to believe. So the pastor should be a servant. He should be a servant leader. Christians should follow their pastor because he follows the Lord and for no other reason. Following because he shepherds the flock. In fact, if you go back up to verse number two, the Bible says, feed the flock of God, feed the flock of God. This verse conveys the idea that a pastor should shepherd the Lord's sheep. And that word feed is a very interesting word. Actually, feed and flock are from the same root word, one being shepherd and one being sheep. Only a few letters difference even uh, there in the Greek. The word feed 
uh, first means to shepherd, as in a verb use of the, of the word shepherd. And the second means sheep. It is interesting that at the beginning of Peter's service, and if you put all this together, back in Matthew 4.19, what did he tell to Peter and the other apostles? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? But in the end, in John chapter 20, when Peter is there on the shore, what does he tell him? Feed my sheep. So we see fishers of men and then feed my sheep. In other words, fishing for men is a calling for every Christian to have a part of evangelism. Feeding sheep is a specific call to the pastor. Both are extremely important to God. And just like we looked at last week, the words, uh, looked at his, uh, the text here for servants and wives and husbands and Christians. We looked at how there was a little bit in each one of those, if you all remember that, that you know, we looked at the hidden man of the heart and the holy man and the hearty man. We looked at some of those things inside uh, that apply to all Christians. And today it's no different. First uh, Peter's going to give some guidelines here uh, about the pastor here in the beginning. And we're going to kind of come back to that. But there are some, some things that apply to everybody. In fact, I believe there is something in every passage of Scripture for every believer in Christ. Every passage of Scripture has something for every believer in Christ. And in our text this morning, notice verse 5. It says, likewise. Remember, we talked about that again last week in a different part of text there. Likewise. That, that links them together. That links them together. This assuredly links some similarities between the two parties, some by the pastor and some by the, the subordinates and other people who are not in the elder's position. And Peter here begins by writing to elders, and then he writes to the younger, and then he writes to all believers. Notice again verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourself to the older. Uh, elder, rather. Ye all, yea, all of you be subject one to another. So in true First Peter form, he's going, pastor, subordinate, and everybody. It's just like he's been doing all the way through uh, the whole text. And this puts all of us, every single one of us, in God's heritage. We're all in the same boat. We're all equal. We're all equal at the foot of cross. And I believe at the foot of the cross. And I believe as Peter continues here, he gives us what I what I have taken away here. Five, four, four actually, four ingredients to righteous living. With the fifth point that ties them all together. Fifth point that ties them all together. So first of all, look at verse five and six together here. It says, Ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. So as we're going through this, we have a recipe for righteousness. You see that on the screen there. And number one, we got to get rid of us. we got to get rid of us. You know, my brother always says, the world, the church, they need a whole lot less of me and a whole lot more of Jesus. And there's always room for that. We must reduce ourselves. And I know that, Brother Tyler, I enjoy alliteration. <laughs> but please don't let that be a distraction, but be an encourager to help you remember these things. So again, we must reduce ourselves in light of Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, as the New Testament opened, what man started the New Testament. I'm not talking about the Lord. What man that God used as a forerunner to open for the Lord Jesus Christ? John the Baptist. And what was one of the things that he said in the beginning of his ministry? I must decrease and he must increase. We must reduce ourselves. And again, there's always, always, always room for more of Jesus and less of us. Not just in a church, not just in our room, but in our lives, in our minds, in all that we do. 
We are simply not the answer to this world's problems. We're not. And if you watch the news and there's part of you, and especially if you're an American, watching the nonsense that's going on in America right now, you want to do something about it. And you want to pray about it. But you know what? We're not the answer. He's the answer. He's the answer for America. He's the answer for Germany. He's the answer for Romania. And you can go on and on and on. Jesus Christ is the answer. We're not. But, you know, we can be used of God to still make a difference if we reduce ourselves. It's no surprise, but get this now. As Christ followers, we are to follow Christ. <laughs> We're to follow Christ. We're to have the mind of Christ. According to Philippians chapter 2, the mind of Christ... I'm just going to try to pull all this together out of Philippians chapter 2. The mind of Christ is a mind that knew He was the Son of God, but made Himself the servant of man. That's the mind that we ought to have. Now, unlike our Savior, we generally have a high estimation of ourselves without merit. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have an awareness of our self-worth. We are worth very much to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a difference between awareness and arrogance. A big difference. We are to be clothed in humility. I mean, he just didn't say be humble. He said be clothed in humility. I mean, think about what that means. What does that, what does that come to your mind when you get up in the morning, you know, as a soldier, you're clothed in soldier garb, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, your uniform. You're clothed in something that represents something. But we are to be clothed in humility. The Apostle Paul puts it a different way in Romans 13, verse 14. He says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. In other words, we either live our lives God's way or we live it our way. And Peter gives us, I think, one of the best examples, the best practical examples for the reason that we should be clothed in humility. Look at verse 5 again. God resisteth the proud. I mean, think about that. Think about as we as we start our day and we're like, you know, and somebody mouths off to us at work. Who are they to talk to me that way? I'm I got this, you know, whatever I got. I got this position. I got this position. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't respect authority. I'm I'm not getting that at all. But deep down inside, we must realize that God resists the proud. God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. You know, we can be the best thing since sliced bread, as Pastor Redick used to say quite often. We can dot every I, we can cross every T, but if we harbor pride in our hearts, we are resisted by an almighty God. I mean, do we want to be resisted by our Creator? Of course not. But if we fall short on things, if we miss an I here and there, and I'm not trying to promote mediocrity, I think we should give our best at everything that we do. But if we miss an I, or dotting an I or crossing a T here and there. We're a little imperfect in some places, but we recognize our frailty and the state of our humility. God gives grace. Now think about that. We can be doing as good as the guy that's prideful, but when he makes a mistake, he's resisted by God. And when we make a mistake, God gives us grace. That's a big difference. This is not just grace from your pastor or your wife or your, your husband or your children or your whatever. It's from God. Grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the truth is that none of us are perfect before God. We have nothing in and of ourselves to boast in. So when God sees that we are putting forth effort to serve Him, duly recognizing our need for Him, He gives grace. What a God we served. Find me another God in any other religion, in any other country, that operates the way the true God does. He says, humble yourselves, therefore. 
because of all those things. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. You want to be greatly used of God? Reduce yourself. I must reduce myself and recognize his righteousness. He's the only one that's worthy. He's the only one that's worthy. And in our recipe for righteousness this morning, the first ingredient is, of course, the reduction of self. Look at verse number seven. The Bible says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. We must release our cares. We must give them all to him. Even the little ones. Even the little ones. The big ones, I think, sometimes as Christians who have been a Christian for a couple minutes or a couple months or whatever. Oh, I'm going through this horrible trial. And... Maybe it's very, very horrible. Maybe you got a speeding ticket and you were going 20 over and you might lose your ticket, your, your license or whatever. You know, first of all, you shouldn't be speeding. But second of all, once you get in that position, maybe sometimes we have the ability because it's so big and we realize how we how how we need him. But we need him in the little things, too. Even the things that we think we have control over. We must release our cares. You know, we are not just to cast some of our cares upon him. All of them. Even our anxieties. You know, in Matthew 11, at the end of that chapter, Jesus says, come unto me. Y'all know the rest of that passage, right? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, I get frustrated just like everybody else does. All of us get frustrated. We, get, we let the circumstances of life come on top of us and we don't know how to get over them because we try to do it on our own. Uh, I get frustrated at things I cannot change sometimes, which is really the most illogical thing to get frustrated at. But as we learned on Thursday night in our study of Acts, Jesus is there with us. Remember when Saul met him? Why persecutest thou me, he says. That means when Saul persecuted the church, he was persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ. He is there with us. He feels our pain. Now, he doesn't necessarily care about what we care about. I don't want to be disrespectful there. He cares that we care about it, but sometimes we care about some pretty ridiculous things. You know, I didn't, where's, where's Billy? I didn't uh, tie, I didn't, I lost one of my Pokemon, right? God cares that Ty cares, but he don't really care about that. He cares because y'all know, I don't like to say something wrong here. <laughs> but Jesus feels our pain. He sees all things from a different perspective. And he knows where the Pokemon is at. He sees, he sees them all from a different perspective. So we really don't have a, a care in that mindset, but he cares for our soul. He cares that we care about things. And he will carry any burden you give him, even the silly ones. I mean, you get that passage there in Matthew 8. He's offering his yoke to us. I mean, in, a, in, real, in, in reality, he's saying, switch burdens with me. Take my yoke, I'll take your yoke. Switch yokes with me. I got this. Carry mine, it's, it's easier. I've, I've already paid the price for that burden. You see, sometimes life gives us burdens that are simply unbearable, and we just cannot carry them. Yes, we play strong sometimes, and we put on a good look, but we know it's just a front, even sometimes for the little ones. Those burdens are killing us. And all along, Jesus is right there with us telling us, give it to me. Switch burdens with me. If you want rest in your soul, give me your burden and take mine. Listen, it's not a coincidence that Peter writes that we should be humble, that we should humble ourselves before 
casting our cares. Right? We must humble ourselves before casting our cares. Because you think about that. If we're not humble, we're taking care of those cares. Right? But if we humble ourselves, then we throw those cares. We give those cares. We ask Him to take those cares from us. When we carry those cares, when we carry even those little burdens, we are telling God, I got this. And we're violating our first principle this morning. We're not reducing ourselves. We're saying, I got this. Lord, I know you did all those things, but I got this. And He says, give it to me. I got it all. That's really the secret to peaceful life. Now, remember, uh, peace is not the absence of conflict and problems and all those things. It's the presence of God and our recognition of the presence of God. We somehow view asking God for help in the little things as a sign of weakness. But if you think about it, we are weak people. We are a needy people. All we like sheep have gone astray. We need God to intervene. And the opposite is actually true of that statement. Recognizing our need for Him and releasing our cares to Him will prove to be a sign of greatness. How do I know that? Look at verse 6 again. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that you can have a great day. Know that He may exalt you in due time. God's gonna, God will not leave us without His presence. He will always follow through with His Word in due time. We must trust God. We must reduce ourselves. We must release our cares. And then look at verse 8. We're getting a little serious here this morning. Verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom we may devour. You know, in this passage, Peter warns us that we have a real enemy. We have a real enemy. That old serpent... The devil, one who walks about like a roaring lion seeking to destroy us, to take us all away. And I realize that, that too much preaching about the dangers of, of this world, of, these, of this spiritual life, the fire and brimstone and all those things, it falls on deaf ears today. But this is the inspired word of God we're talking about. It is still relevant. It's always relevant. God, through Peter, is telling us to be sober and to be vigilant. And we talked a couple weeks ago about what it meant to be sober. If y'all remember that, I hope, uh, hope it rings a bell back to you. It means more than just not being under the influence of certain drugs, but a larger warning about being under the influence of anything that's not God or of God. And according to Philippians chapter 2, we are to have the mind of Christ, who of course was always sober. He always had a calm and collected spirit. He was level-headed. But Peter also tells us to be vigilant. And this is where we're going to get to our, second, or our third point here. This word means, very applicable, to be awake. To be awake. How do we be awake? We follow the Lord. And we, we're awake at the circumstances that are going on. We have to rise above the rhetoric in this world. There is a lot of rhetoric. There is a lot of this and that going around today. Don't be duped. Don't be complacent. Be vigilant. Be vigilant. In our day and age, one of the ways we can do that is to rise above these things. There's a lot of, again, a lot of information being transferred back and forth. You know, whether, whether we hear it from our family or from our spouses or from social media or, or from the news or whatever it may be, there's all kinds of nonsense going back and forth. And everybody seems to have a polarized opinion. Almost right and wrong. Right? Is it just me? It's just clear, right? There's no middle ground anymore. 
You do this, then you're that. You do this, then you're that. There's, there's no information. There's no investigation. There's no anything. You're just this category and this category. Nothing else. It's a sign of the times, I tell you. Now, it's certainly okay to have an opinion, but we must not be swayed by untruths. We must not be swayed by untruth, regardless of the source. It can be your favorite news media, your favorite person. If it's false, it's false. And if it's true, it's true. There is a thing called absolute truth. Turn with me a little bit uh, to the left back here. I get a little ahead of next week to 1 Thessalonians. Look at the last chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Hold your place there on Peter. We're going to come back to that. Put a tab there or something because we're going to go to another place before we come back to 1 Peter. So again, this is under the heading of rising above the rhetoric and knowing what's false and what's true, being vigilant. Look at verse 21 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The Bible says, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. You know, that's a good rule of thumb. That's a good way to start your day and to end your day and to go about every day. Prove all things and hold fast that which is good. Now I want you to take your Bible and go a little bit farther to the left and go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This kind of goes uh, a little bit farther along with my, my introduction about uh, pastors and the reason we have church and all those things. If I can find Ephesians in my Bible. There we go. Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to look at verse number 11. Paul writes, the Bible says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So we are, Paul here is writing to the local church and he is telling us, warning us that we are not to be children tossed to and fro. We are not to be carried away with a, by the slight of men and, and the cunningness and craftiness of men that lay by, that just lay there and wait to deceive. Christians, we are in this season. This is the season that we're in. Don't be tossed to and fro. Don't be carried away. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Don't be deceived. Be vigilant. You know, the world, those outside of God's people, they desperately want God's people to stoop and be entangled with the world. There's no, there's, no, there's no doubt about it. They want us to be entangled with the world's affairs, and by far and large, Christians are falling by the droves. We must rise above this. We must rise above it. We must have an, a, a, an eternal perspective, a heavenly perspective. Now turn with me to 2 Timothy, back to the right a little bit. 2 Timothy chapter 2. These are important things, and I want you to see them in the text. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Probably one of my favorite chapters. I know i got a lot of favorite chapters. <laughs> Second Timothy chapter 2. Now, this is, a, this is a great passage. But I want to start by reading verse number 1. He says, Thou therefore, my son, 
Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 2 says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now get this now, verse 4, No man that warth, no soldier of Christ, entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. No man that warth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. In other words, a good Christian soldier, and I'm not talking about taking lives, I'm talking about the delivery of eternal life. God uses us to do these things. We are not entangled with the affairs in this world. We don't ignore them. We certainly deal with them, but we are not entangled. That word entangled sounds just like it is. It's like a bug caught in a spider's web. We are not to be entangled in the world's affairs. We must rise above this rhetoric that's out in this world today and view the world through God's lens, through God's eyes. We must not understand these affairs. Here's, here's the important part now. We must not understand these affairs with the heart and mind of a fallen man, but with the heart and mind of a redeemed man. And there is a big difference. It changes everything. And truthfully, this verse and the next verse tell us who really is behind the rhetoric, the false rhetoric that is, and, and what the rhetoric that falls short of bringing glory to God. And that, of course, is Satan. And if we are to live a victorious life of righteousness, we must do so in humility. We must cast our cares upon Him. We must be extremely vigilant in, the, in these days and all throughout the New Testament age. But look at verses 8 and, eight and 9 again back in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Be sober, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We must resist the devil. Very clear. And I realize that some critics of Scripture may challenge the words of God today. But these are not just filler words. These are inspired words. We have an enemy. We don't like focusing on the enemy. We shouldn't focus. We don't like talking about him. But it's like your flat tire on your car. You can ignore it all day long, but it's still flat. <laughs> you have to go fix it. You have to deal with it. We have an enemy. We must resist him. On one hand, it's, it's kind of common sense for, for God's people to resist the things that resist God. But on the other hand, it's interesting that God felt that he needed to write, resist the devil, to God's people. This is a book to believers, by the way. First Peter is written to believers, and in that he's telling believers, and by the way, I know I probably don't need to say this, he didn't caveat it with that. He says, resist the devil, to believers now, resist the devil. We are to resist the devil, we are to oppose Satan and his influences. Because it is written, it implies that some Christians were not resisting the devil. Or some of us are not resisting the devil. And then he also says when we resist, we must do so in faith. We must do so. Whom resists steadfast in the faith. Here's kind of how this works. God says to do something. But God always requires an element of faith for us to follow. Satan comes along and says, hath God said. And he shows us something that doesn't require faith to follow. And now we have a, now we have a decision. This is clear to follow. This is unclear to follow. Because of our lack of faith. God says have faith. Resist him in the faith. I hope that makes sense. Resist him in the faith. And Peter is telling us to trust him no matter what. 
I've, I've mentioned it many times. That sometimes we're the, tomorrow, even the next hour, it's darkness to us. We cannot see beyond our faith. It's short-sighted, myopic, or however you want to call that. And we're holding on to God's hand, and He's leading us into the darkness. Hold on. Follow Him. Trust Him. And resist the temptation to not follow Him. Resist it. Resist the devil. We are to resist Him steadfast in the faith. I like that word, steadfast. It means to be unmovable. Unmovable but the things that are not God, uh, from God. We are not to be moved or led by Satan or his circumstances, or any circumstance for that matter, unless God leads. We must be led by the Holy Spirit of God. Remember Paul? The Apostle Paul, they're in the book of Acts going back to Jerusalem. You know, remember that? And they told him, Paul, in my own words here, they're going to kill you in Jerusalem. They're going to put a, a noose around your neck, so to speak. They're, it's not going to be good. What's Paul's response? None of these things move me. None of these. I will not be feared. I will not be afraid of what man can do unto me because I serve a God that's greater than man. None of these things move me. And Peter gives us some practical reasoning this morning that we can take with us where we go, wherever we go. When we resist the devil steadfast in faith, we do so knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. In other words, don't be discouraged because the days are hard or the days are uncertain because you cannot see them. We're all in the same boat. Peter is saying, Peter has a foot to stand on, right? Or stand, uh, he has... Uh, he has his experience there by the fire, bro. We talked about that in the beginning of our study of, of 1 Peter there. He's went through. He's failed the test. He's, he's denied Christ. And he says that the devil that tempted him, that, that ripped him apart, that devoured him, he wants to do that to you and to me, but he's not putting it in a negative context. He's putting it in a, in a positive conflict as saying, look, Shannon, you're going through some things. I'm going through some things. You're not Special in that mind to Satan. Satan wants to destroy everybody. We're special to God. But it's not like, you know, sometimes you're going through something like, man, everybody else has got it so much better than I got it. Peter says, it's the same devil. It's the same devil doing the same thing to you as he's doing to somebody. And things come in season. Maybe your season is down here and your neighbor's season is up here. But it's the same devil trying to destroy us. Especially if you're living for God. Especially if you're living for God. And this really just adds another reason for what we have right here this morning, the local church. Yes, we come here to worship, but we are to be a family who actually likes being around each other. <laughs> we're, we're each other. We're, we're the brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to live and endure these afflictions together. Similar to how a body, in my hand and this hand and this foot and all these things kind of work together. That's who we are. We work together and we work the best together. And no matter what, we are to humble ourselves. We're to trust God in all things. We're to resist the devil. And I like the way James put this entire dialogue. You remember our study in James the first two months of this year. He put it this way. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God. And he will draw nigh to you. Now, if you remember, James was the first book written in the New Testament. And here we are, Peter, a few years later, and they're saying the same thing. They're saying the same thing. Resist the devil. I hope you caught that in there. Resist the devil. And what does he do? He runs away. He flees. Draw nigh to God. What does he do? Draws nigh to you. What a concept. 
why do I have problems with my mind figuring that out? You know? If I draw nigh to God, he draws near to me. But if I resist the devil, he runs from me. But why does it seem like every Christian today, we draw nigh to the devil, who now draws nigh to us, and we resist God, who doesn't flee? He's still there with us. But we're over here somewhere. We're over here somewhere. If we resist God, he will never flee us. But he won't be near. Our resistance of him is a direct invitation for the devil to draw near. And I think these four ingredients here, reduce self, release your cares, rise above the rhetoric and resist the devil, will help us to maintain a righteous life before God. And while we should simply live for God because he's worthy, living for God doesn't come without promise. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, but the God of all grace. Who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. You know, all true grace, if God is the God of all grace, all true grace originates from God. And when this life is over, after all the suffering is gone, when the chief shepherd appears, we get a crown, a crown of glory. And this is not a promise only to pastors. That phrase hinges on the likewise there. We all get a crown. James 1.11 puts it this way. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Promise to them that love him. 2 Timothy 4, 7. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. 1 Timothy 1, 12 says, I am persuaded that he is able, God is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. In other words, when I live my whole life, I'm committed that he's going to keep his promise to me. And that promise is a crown, and, and quite honestly, I think that's one of the least things we get. But it's something that we can understand. It's something that appeals to us. We get eternal life, forgiveness of sins, a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But this crown we, we will receive. But I like what the four and twenty elders do with it, which I think is a picture of the church there in Revelation chapter 4. They said that we will fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. The question is, is he worthy in this life? Is he worthy in this life? These five truths this morning are to believers. They're to God's people. So if, you, if you're here and you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, I want to tell you that while some of these principles will still work, biblical principles generally work. If you apply biblical principles to your business and financial principles, it's still going to work. But these five truths here work the best when you're in the family of God. Matter of fact, they only work completely when you're in the family of God. They will not have their full impact until you surrender completely to Him. You must admit your wretchedness, turn from your sin, turn to Jesus Christ, accept his righteousness, switch those yokes, and become a child of God. And that, truly, is the recipe for righteousness. Let's pray.